Well, we're picking up where we left off in Second Corinthians chapter 3. So if you would open with us there, I'll be reading the whole chapter in a minute. Now, oftentimes, like the Corinthians, we come to a church and we don't know necessarily where it's going or what it's doing. And we want to look at the church. We want to understand the church. We want to judge what's happening in the church. Judge the minister. Are they fitting for us? Are they fitting for our needs? A lot of times we want to know if they're fitting for our desires. Uh, does it have the right explanation and exposition of the Scriptures? Are they focused on what's most important? Are they focused on what is right? Does it have a right spirit? And this isn't bad. We're told to do this. John says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit. But test the spirits to see whether they are from God, for many false prophets have gone out into the world, 1 John 4.1. We should not also neglect Paul's admonition, do not despise prophecies, but test everything, hold fast to what is good, abstain from every form of evil. Uh, we've preached through both of those passages in the past. But how do we know what is good? How do we know what is right? How do we know what is important? Isaiah 8.20, to the teaching and the testimony, if they do not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn, no light, no truth. I believe the Corinthians were trying to do the first part. They were trying to determine if Paul's ministry really was correct, if it was what they should be following, if it was what they should be believing and doing. Unfortunately, I think they messed up on the second part. And their standard of judgment was the wisdom of the Greeks and the Romans and their philosophers that was prevalent in Corinth, and not according to necessarily the word. And so they were really struggling. Do we follow Paul or do we follow these other teachers who are saying they're superior to Paul and they have a better message? And look at their life. They're rich and famous and happy. And look at Paul's life. Chased from town to town, beaten, stoned, flogged, poor, having to... F- make his own money at the making Who do you follow on? They were confused. And this problem seems to be throughout First and Second Corinthians. And what we should see, though, is particularly in this chapter that we're going to read and look at today, rather than fighting with them on their own battlefield, taking them on in the world of philosophy and proving that his wisdom is better than theirs, that God's wisdom is superior, He doesn't do that. Instead, he takes on the false teachers in his battlefield, the scriptures. You remember we're we're reading Bodhi's book, The Expository Apologetics, Answering Objections with the Power of the Word. And he, he comes to this very topic and says, Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. Now, the fool of Proverbs is one who lacks spiritual and and uh, moral wisdom. And it says you're like them if you try to fight them in their own world. That it's pointless, you just become a fool. But he takes the second, the following verse, verse 5 in Proverbs 26, and says, Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. Some see this as a contradiction, but he says, No, this is where you're answering them with the word according to their own foolishness, so they can see from God's word that what they are doing is foolish, what they are believing, what they are arguing. So Paul is dragging these people into his own world, 
Now, at least some of these false teachers were teaching the superiority of the Old Covenant, the Old Testament Covenant, the Covenant of Moses. And this led them into sharp conflict with Paul. And so in this passage, Paul, like the author of Hebrew does throughout the whole book of Hebrews, is showing why the Old Covenant should not be the focus of the Christian, and that the New Covenant is superior and has replaced it. His answer should help us put to bed any of those lingering doubts we may have about the Mosaic Covenant and its place in our faith. And so we'll be looking at that today, but let's read chapter 3 together, and then we will look at the part of the passage we're coming to today. So, 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again, or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you, or, or from you? You yourselves are a letter of recommendation written on our hearts, on, to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit, for the letter kills but the Spirit gives life. Now if the ministry of death carved in letters of stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze on the face of Moses because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness was far exceeded in glory. Indeed, this is the case. What well, once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with the glory, much more will that which is permanent have glory. Since we have such a hope, we are to be very bold. Not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze on the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and the Spirit of the Lord, where it is, there is freedom. For we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, ought to be transformed into the same image, one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Spirit, from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, as we come to this text today, we pray that you would open our hearts, open our minds, that we might understand and receive the things that you teach. And we pray, Lord, that we would be able to put them into practice in our lives, that our lives might be more and more transformed into the image of your Son, that we might more and more turn from the sin and corruption of the world give you the glory. We pray, Lord, that these things would help us as we try to give an answer for the reason for the hope that is in us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, last time we looked at the first three verses where God testifies to the glory of the New Covenant ministry by showing that it, it changes the hearts of believers 
and that that new heart, that new life, is the evidence of the work of God and the power of God, and therefore the evidence of the righteousness and the rightness of Paul's ministry. He doesn't need a letter from men. He's telling the people of Corinth, look at your heart. What were you before? What are you now? How did that happen? Is it something you did? Is it something wisdom did? Or is it something the power of the Spirit of God did? That should be evidence enough to you of the worth of my ministry amongst you. Uh, in verse 4 through 6, he goes on to explain the glory of this new covenant isn't the glory of men and their wisdom, but it is the glory of God who makes them sufficient to do it. They did not win believers by having the best arguments, the finest speech, the most eloquence, the most wisdom. They won converts by the power of the Holy Spirit working in the lives and hearts of men, taking out that heart of stone and putting in that heart of flesh, as we saw in Ezekiel 36. So Paul says, my confidence comes from seeing these changed hearts. I've seen your change, the transformation of your lives. I've seen you go from being pagans to being Christians, from Christians to growing in your faith. And I know that the Lord is working among you, and I know that that happened through my ministry, and therefore I have confidence. And guess what? You people of Corinth should take the same confidence. Are you not seeing your lives transformed? Are you not seeing people come to the Lord? That should be the evidence for his ministry. He was struggling mightily against the local men who were influenced by the Greek and Roman philosophers, and they wanted to follow those who seemed to be the wisest and the best and the greatest. And Paul is saying, no, follow those who have demonstrated the power of God through the transformation of lives. Earlier in chapter 2, and actually in the first two chapters, we saw that the enemy of Paul was attacking Paul's life, and I mentioned this a little earlier. You know, he had a very inglorious life, everything he suffered, everything he did, and not the glorious life like a philosopher should have, who, who would be honored by all and respected by all and followed by many, who would be financed, who would have no worries Paul had many concerns and many troubles and many trials. Paul writes to them, I appeal to you, therefore, my brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God. This is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect, Romans 12.1. Paul was telling them, not only is my life the way it is because of my service for God, but you should live your lives as well as a living sacrifice. Men don't want to live as a living sacrifice. They don't want the verse that Paul says, you know, anyone who wants to lead a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. We don't want that in our natural selves. Man does not like that idea. And so people were being led astray from the teachings of the Bible into the wisdom of man. But Paul points out, and we can point out, Christ said the same thing. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me, Luke 9.23. The life of the Christian should be the life of living for God in this world, knowing that 
We are therefore storing up treasure in heaven for the coming future world. As we saw in our walk through the Thessalonian epistles, you know, we live for the day when Christ restores all things and we are living with him forever. This is like the period of going to college where you're trying to get an education to get a good job. You know, this is the struggle time. The good times come later. Although any of you who went to college and struggled to get a good job know that it doesn't get really that much easier, but <laughs> in eternity, it will. As for much learning comes, wit- comes wisdom, but also comes weariness. So Paul, in his first letter, also had a different enemy. You know, not the one enemy here was talking about how Paul, you know, you follow the teacher, you're going to be like the teacher. Do you really want to be like Paul? Second enemy he dealt with in the first letter was boasting of their great wisdom, their superiority, their glorious speech. Paul was nothing compared to their greatness and their abilities. And we see that often in life. Paul, though, says, I came to you, brothers. I did not come proclaiming you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Christ Jesus and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and fear and trembling. And my speech and my message were not with plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith not might rest not in the wisdom of men, but the power of God. First Corinthians two one through five. Now we we have this on the one hand this group of great speakers and orators trained in the Greco-Roman philosophy, and they're looking at Paul, saying, "Look at this man. He doesn't even know how to speak. He's he's afraid. He doesn't speak well." Why would you follow him and not us? We're better. Paul says, no, I intentionally knew nothing. He was probably trained in philosophy and rhetoric, but he wasn't going to use that to try and persuade them. He was going to use the Spirit of God and the transformation of their hearts to show them the truth. That way it would not rest on them in their wisdom, but on God, their hope and their faith. And so that was Paul's choice in his life not to be competing with that man for man's position, but to be an instrument in the hands of God to do the ministry that God had assigned him. Now, this chapter, the enemy seems to be claiming that Paul's ministry was inglorious because he lacked the recommendation letters, the recognition of the world. The recommendation, he says, I have is written on your hearts by the Holy Spirit in your transformation, your salvation, and in your sanctification. Look there. So Paul is putting his hope and his confidence in God and telling them to do likewise. And God is testifying to the glory of this new covenant ministry that Paul has by using weak and insufficient men like Paul. He spoke with fear and trembling. I remember when I took public speaking for the first time in seminary. I was an engineer, worked in the back room, never spoke to anyone. And the very first message I preached, I preached the entire thing like this, and I never looked up and I never spoke or broke I was so nervous. Uh, now, we all start like that. Hopefully we get some confidence as we see the Lord working in us and giving us that strength. 
But Paul didn't have those things, apparently. He struggled, and yet he did what he was called to do, knowing that it was God who made him sufficient, not his own abilities. He didn't have to be the brilliant orator. He didn't have to be the most comfortable. You know, you ever, you ever watch one of those infomercials? Yeah, I found very confident. No problem. No, Paul wasn't that man, and he didn't have to be. Because the power came not from him, but from God. And that's why Paul says to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 3, 6, and 7, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. And neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. God is the one who transforms the heart. God is the one who gives you the spiritual growth. The pastor, the teacher, the book you read, those things are instruments God can use, but it's really God's power not man's. And Paul had great confidence that it was that way, so he didn't worry about his own inadequacies. The power and proof of the Christian ministry was not as the scholastics seemed to think, found in man at his glorious wisdom and his gloriously successful life, but rather in the power of the one true living God working in the lives of men through his chosen instruments, who were just mere men. So Paul's established that the glory of this New Testament ministry, the glorious work of God in the hearts of men, is really the work of God, not of men. So he moves into the next contrast, the glory of the Old Covenant, the Mosaic Covenant, contrasted with the glory of the New Covenant. Now verse 6b is kind of the transition verse. And I want to spend a little bit of time on that. A new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. What is he talking about? Well, what is the letter in the Spirit? Paul talks about this in Romans 10.5. He says, Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that a person who does the commandments shall live by them. He's referring back to Leviticus 18.4 and 5. And you shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore keep my statutes and rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. Now that's a very clear statement from God. If you do this, you live. In other words, if you obey my word, my rules, my covenant, in this case especially the entirety of the Mosaic covenant, you will live. Glorious. But what if you don't keep them? Paul says the wages of sin is death, Romans 6, 23. He also says all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, no, not one. You might want to know how does the letter kill and how does the spirit give life? What is that about? Well, Paul speaks of this in Romans 8, and we're going to read through a fair amount of it. I think it gives a good explanation of what he's talking about in just that simple phrase. In Romans 8, starting at verse 1, there's no, now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh, 
in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Clear, right? Or do I need to explain, maybe? The law brings death because man, weakened by the flesh, weakened by the sinful flesh, his sins, his corruption, breaks the law. And so knowing the law makes you guilty of breaking the law more so than you not knowing the law. You're not excusable by not knowing because God has made it claim in, in creation and in our hearts what is right and what is wrong. But the law makes it more clear, more explicit. And we can't get life that way because none of us in our fallen nature are able to perfectly keep the law. And so the law promises life, and God righteously makes that offer. Do this and you will live. But man, because of our sinfulness, our corruption, we cannot do it. So the only thing the law really brings for us is death, condemnation. You have broken this commandment. You have broken that commandment. It becomes obvious to us through the law that we cannot obey God. We cannot please God. In fact, that's what Paul says. Right? The mind... Uh, picking up at verse eight in Romans eight, or verse five in Romans eight, for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. We are all living in the flesh from birth, but those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. For the mind set on flesh is death, but the mind set on the spirit is life and peace. The mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God; it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please. God. This is where we are, and if we're in that state, the law is not going to bring us life. It is only going to bring us death. And that's why he here refers to it, the letter, meaning the written law of Moses, kills. It brings death to us. And that's a, it's a sad thing. But the Spirit brings life not because we become perfect going forward. If we say we have no sins, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. John, 1 John 1, 8, remember Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. John fourteen six. What John is saying is, if you think you don't have sin, you don't know God. He has no place in you. You have sins. The next verse in John, 1 John says, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins if we confess them to him. And the Spirit brings life and brings peace. Let's continue in Romans 8, setting, picking up at verse 9. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, though your body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. How does the Spirit dwell in you? Remember, we looked at Ezekiel 36 Last time, God will take out the heart of stone, put in a heart of flesh. God will put a new spirit in you. God will cause you to walk according to his statutes. How does the spirit dwell in us? Because God put it there. That's our regeneration, we call it, where God regenerates the soul and makes us go from being the unbeliever to being born again as the believer and able then to obey him. 
You who were once dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. He set it aside, nailing it to the cross. Dealing with the Colossian heresies in Colossians 2, 13 and 14. Jesus paid for the transgressions of the law by his people on the cross. In Jesus' words, he says, Matthew five seventeen through 20, Do not think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I do not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one iota, not one dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Obedience to the law can only save you if your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees in particular considered their obedience to be perfect. And if it wasn't, their compensating by their good deeds would cancel their bad deeds. But Jesus was saying that's not enough. What we really need to do is be truly perfect. And if our righteousness doesn't exceed theirs to the point of being perfect, if a person does these things, you'll live by them. Then he faces the wages of sin. He faces death. We have to be without a single transgression, a single lack of conformity to the word of God in order to be saved by the law. This is where the gospel comes in. This is where the true purpose of the law becomes clear. Paul says, Now we know whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, that the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. What was the purpose of the law? To bring us knowledge of sin, to bring us knowledge that we could not save ourselves. This is the central theme of Paul's teaching about the law in the Old Testament. The law of Moses brings us knowledge of sin, conviction of sin, brings us a sentence of death for our transgression of sin. Now you might ask, as Paul does rhetorically in Galatians 3, starting at verse 21, is the law then contrary to the promises of God? God promised, do these things and you'll live. Is the law actually contrary to that? And the other promises. Paul says, certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming of faith should be revealed. So then the law was our guardian, or the King James schoolmaster, until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. Now that faith has come, we are no longer under the guardian, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. Now the word there in the Greek is a curious word. It's used of the trusted slave 
that a master would put over his young child, young son, to be with him every moment of the day and teach him right from wrong and what he was doing, stop him, explain to him what he was right, what was right, what was wrong. And Paul is using that particular Greek word because that was really the purpose of the law. It was to teach us what was right and what was wrong. And, of course, prepare us for Christ because only through Christ could we receive the forgiveness of sins. Could we receive salvation? Now, yes, did Adam know Christ personally? Yes, but did he know the details that we know? Probably not. The Old Testament didn't really give the full details, the full glory of what the Messiah would do, of his life for us, of his struggles for us, of his living everything, every temptation of this world for us and doing it all perfectly. They didn't know the details, but they knew they could not save themselves. They could not obey the law perfectly. They had no hope of self-salvation. They needed to look outside. They needed to look for a substitutionary atonement, to use the technical word. They need to look for someone else to take care of that for them. So no one was saved through the law because no one other than the God-man Jesus Christ ever kept the whole law perfectly. Through the law, we can have awareness of our sins and our ability to, inability to pay for it, and we come to that awareness of needing that salvation Life, salvation from sin and death and hell, comes from the belief, the faith, that Jesus came to save sinners. He did this by being our substitute. To be our substitute, he needed to be truly a man. If he was not a man, he could not stand in the place of man. So he became man. He kept the law perfectly, undergoing all the trials, all the temptations, fulfilling everything exactly as God wanted it fulfilled, earning for himself life as promised in the law of God. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord, for Leviticus 18, 4 and 5. He saves us also by paying the price due for our sins, undergoing the curse of God, the wrath of God, do us for our sins, he took it upon himself on the cross. And of course, his death would not be sufficient for anyone if he were just a man. A man's death will not pay for his sins. An eternity of torment in hell does not pay for a man's sins. He had to be God. And if Jesus were not both God and man, two distinct natures in one person forever... He would not have the ability to atone for our death, for our sin. He would not have the ability to give us life that he earned. But because as God, his worth as a person is infinite, he is able to supply for all of his people, both the righteousness of his obedience and the atonement of his sacrifice. Now, these things were known to the Old Testament believers. They are heavily veiled in the Mosaic Covenant. We can see those things are there, and Paul draws it out constantly in his writings. We can see it in Hebrews. We can see it in Jesus' teaching. But it's heavily veiled. It's hidden from our view, perfect knowledge of it. But, of course, God working in the hearts of the Old Testament believers, they would put their hope and trust in God's deliverance and God's salvation and the provision 
that God had promised all the way back to Genesis 3.15, where he promised deliverance from Satan. But these things are very boldly proclaimed in Christ in the New Covenant, and that really shows us the glory of this New Covenant ministry that Paul has. It is better than the teachings of the pagan Greeks and Romans. It is better than the teachings of the Judaizers. It is better than all the false religions throughout the region because it is the true power of God. And we come now to verses 7 and following where we learn of the glory of the new covenant. It is both unfading and unveiled. Now we, we've spoken before about dispensationalism and messianic Judaism, and we don't want to really spend too much time on that. But there are still people today, and I still get letters addressed to the church, talking about how we must become Jews, essentially, to be saved, and the glories of the Old Covenant. And indeed, the Old Covenant, the Covenant of Moses, was glorious. Think about it. Make no mistake. I'd I'd have loved to have been there and seen it. Maybe not, but (laughs) <laughs> if a sinfulness would let me apparent more to me, and I would be probably quaking in terror with the rest of the Jews. But think about it. The plagues of Egypt, you know, God demonstrating his great superiority over the gods of Egypt and leading the people out of Egypt. The pillar of cloud by day, the pillar of fire by night. Can you imagine seeing that? What a glorious thing. You know, our, our hearts would be lifted up as believers, knowing that that is something God has sent to represent himself to lead us, to guide us. Imagine seeing the crossing of the Red Sea, walking on dry ground as the enemy is behind you, seeing the enemy come through the sea and the sea collapse on them and slaughter them, and knowing the glory and the power of God to deliver his people. What a glorious introduction to a ministry. What a glorious introduction to the covenant that he was going to make with them on Mount Sinai bringing water from a rock and manna from heaven to feed them and water them in the desert where there was no food or water, and you have potentially a couple of million people in a desert with nothing taken care of. Then think of the giving of the Ten Commandments. You know, the, this cloud comes down on the mountain, there's fire and there's thunder and rumblings, and the voice of God was so terrifying that people quaked and said, please don't let God speak to us again. Speak, you know, let him speak to you, Moses. Uh, But uh, what a glorious, glorious thing the Old Covenant was under Moses. Yet Paul points out that it wasn't a permanent glory. Like the shining of Moses' face that faded after he spoke to God, the glory of this covenant would fade once it had accomplished its purpose. What was its purpose? Well, it was our guardian, our schoolmaster, to lead us to Christ, to teach us right from wrong until Christ should be fully revealed. There was there for our benefit until Christ should come. And now that Christ has come and salvation by faith has been explained in greater detail to his people and we understand the value of the cross and what Jesus did and what God was really working at, we look at the things of the Old Covenant and say, they're veiled. They're, they're shadows of reality. And we've all seen shadow play and we see the real world. That's how different they are. 
The old covenant in all of its wondrous glory was more than anything any man had ever seen, we read this morning. Right? No man has ever seen, no country has ever seen, no people has ever seen the wonders and miracles that God would do for the people of Israel. And yet, compared to Christ, it was but a shadow. It was our schoolmaster, but now Christ obeyed, Christ paid the punishment, Christ saves, and we have all of that work of God, work of Christ, imputed to us through faith in him, faith in his work. Now, mind you, the superior glory of the new covenant over the Mosaic covenant doesn't mean that we are now free to sin. We're not free to sin. If we love him, we will keep his commandments. If we don't keep his commandments, it shows we don't love God and we probably don't know God. Uh, what we're saying here is so that we are no longer looking to the law of Moses as the means of bringing us to heaven. The Jews, the apostate Jews of Jesus' day, were looking at salvation as coming through the law. And they had to make some adjustments. Okay, I can't perfectly keep it, but therefore, obviously... God must mean that my my good deeds cancel out my bad deeds. And they had that weight in the balance kind of approach. But that was never the teaching of the Old Testament law. It was required perfection, and what they were to do was look beyond themselves to God for salvation. And everything he did for them in the Exodus, right up even to giving them a land, he says, I will give you fields that you did not plow. I will give you vineyards you did not plant. It's all trying to show them that I will give it to you. You just have to look to me in faith. But they would not do that. They would not look beyond themselves. All of those wondrous things, though, the giving of the Ten Commandments, the voice of God from heaven, the fire, the, the cloud. Now, one of the things I was most enthralled by, of course, was personally was being able to inquire of God. They had the Orium and Durium, and the high priest could take it off the breastplate of judgment and inquire of God and cast them as you know, part of an official religious ceremony, God had promised to answer, and they could get direction from God. I can't imagine all of that glory being paling in consideration of anything else until I knew Christ. And now knowing Christ, I see, why would I turn to the shadow why do you want to go back to those weak things, the shadows of reality, when reality is there before you? Don't do it. As he tells the Galatians, if you allow yourselves to be circumcised, if you seek salvation through circumcision, Christ is of nothing to you. He has no, no more value to you. He can't save you if you're looking to that. And Paul fights that battle everywhere that he ministered. Because there were synagogues everywhere that he ministered. Now, what is this coming to an end that is spoken of? Well, we were looking at Hebrews 8, verse 6. As it is, Christ obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. Now, as we saw earlier, the fault was the sinful fallen nature of man, not something God had done wrong. God's promise was faithful. It just wasn't 
useful to sinful man. It couldn't save him. So the fault was not with God or even his covenant, because we are all actually saved by perfect obedience to the law of Moses. Now you might say, huh? How? Well, by Christ's perfect obedience, the law of Moses imputed to us. So when we stand before the judgment, God looks in his books and says, you know, you have the perfect obedience that Christ gave you. Your sins are covered by the blood of Christ. You have fulfilled the law and have the life that is promised. So we have that hope in the future. So he did find fault with them, continuing on in verse 8 of Hebrews 8. Said, But he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their forefathers on the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, meaning they broke the covenant and were violators of the covenant, earning the curse of the covenant. And so I showed no concern for them, and they showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put their law in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. They shall not teach each other one another, saying, As brother, know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities and remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish. That that understanding, that teaching from God in the book of Hebrews is also what Paul is getting at in verse 10 when he said, Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it, the glory of Christ, the glory of the promise of salvation through him is so much more glorious that the light of the old covenant seems dim and disappears. It has no value in comparison. You know, imagine a big searchlight, you're shining your flashlight and somebody turns on a searchlight. Can you see the flashlight anymore? No. Uh, the glory of the Old Covenant was tremendous, but it is so overshadowed by what Christ has done and what the New Covenant promises us that it no longer has glory. Its glory is gone. Now, why does it have no glory when it seems so glorious in the beginning? Because it's found out that the New Covenant has provided what the Old Covenant could not. And that was the point I was making in Galatians. If you turn back to the Old Covenant, look for your hope and your salvation and the law, you're turning away from Christ in the New Covenant. And so it has come to an end. Now it continues the chapter, and we're running short on time. The Old Covenant had this veil over it. Just as Moses put a veil over his face, so the Old Covenant was veiled to them the truth. They might be ever seeing but never understanding, ever hearing but not understanding that whole principle that there's a veil on it that sinful man cannot penetrate. Remember, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for their folly to him. He's not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned. 1 Corinthians 2.14 
Only the Holy Spirit through regeneration can remove that veil. Only the Holy Spirit causing them to be born again, taking out that heart of stone and giving him a heart of flesh, putting the Holy Spirit within him. Only that can remove the veil that keeps people from seeing and understanding the gospel in the Old Testament. Now, the Messianic Jew today wants us to acknowledge the Old Covenant is superior. I remember one of them telling me I was just a Second Covenant believer, as if he was somehow superior because he was a Jew. And once they start down that road, though, they forget the glory of the New Covenant and the teaching of God that it has passed away because the New is better, superior, it is complete, it has what we really need fully revealed to us. We all, with unveiled faces, can look at Christ in the Scriptures. And as he points out at verse 18, we will, with unveiled face, behold the glory of the Lord. Think of his transfiguration. They were struck with awe. They were struck with terror, seeing the perfect Christ revealed in his glory. It showed them where their own sins were and how close they were to where they needed to be. That's why they were afraid. But we will all see that face. And we're being transformed into that same image, that perfection that Christ has will be ours in the day that he visits us, in the day that we join him. We'll be transformed into that image, one degree of glory to another. And it is God who does that. And so Paul in this chapter is putting to rest, I think, their, their attacks against the gospel, that somehow what they have is superior to the gospel. There is nothing in all of creation that has been given to man that is better than the new covenant, than the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we should keep that in mind in our lives. I know there are times when we're tempted, we're reading the Old Testament, and we're excited by the glorious things and the revelations, and we wish we had the temple, we wish we had the Urim and Thurim, we wish we had those ceremonies, and we need to remember we have better. Those were a shadow. We have Christ fully revealed to us. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the glories of the new covenant. We thank you, Lord, that we can live in a day when the things about your Son and about his work and about the reality of salvation can really be known by us. And while at times we think of the glories of the past and wish we could experience them, help us, Lord, to remember that we have something far greater, something far more glorious, that new heart, that new life, having been born again in your Son through the Spirit. And we do pray, Lord, as we give that answer for the hope that is in us to those who don't understand this, be they pagans or fascinated by Judaism or whatever, that we would help them to understand with all the true Jews that went before them that there is hope only in Christ and that the new covenant in him has immeasurable value compared to everything that came before. Pray for your mercies on us that we would live our lives in a manner worthy of this gospel, worthy of this new covenant. They would seek, Lord, to purge the sin from within our hearts and our lives and seek to conform ourselves more and more into the image of your Son. 
not through our own strength and power alone, but through the power of the Holy Spirit working in us and through our diligence to make use of the means of grace. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.